Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today I have a very special guest we already had once. And um, this time the podcast is recorded in a camper van at my conference OMR. And it's kind of sweaty in here. So you might hear the ventilator in the background. Um, my guest today is Miko Hyponen. And Miko, maybe you want to take the introduction oh. because I'm pretty bad at that. And <laughs> I, I just saw so many things on your LinkedIn profile. Um, oh, yeah. I rarely look into LinkedIn, so I'm sure it's out of date. But nevertheless, thanks for having me. And indeed, my name is Mikko. This is my year number 31 working in cybersecurity. And all this time, I've been trying to do the one and the same thing, trying to protect users, cybersecurity and cyber privacy. And I guess things have changed over and over again every couple of years throughout these 31 years. And you actually did a lot of things. You just wrote a book, I think. I did, yeah. Actually, coming out in English in August 2022. So uh, if anybody's interested in what I did during the pandemic, you can order it from Wiley. It's on Amazon.com already. So and it's, it's about what? The book is titled, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. And that's the Hyponen Law. That's what I happened to say a couple of years ago. And it stuck, the idea being that when we add functionality and connectivity to everyday devices they become smart devices but they also become vulnerable devices so the i don't know people killing smart toaster and stuff like that right it's it's all in there although the book is not just about iot it's it's actually a collection of of like technical details of of the trends around us and then stories i i actually worked extensively with with my publisher to make the book accessible to everybody. So it's anecdotes and stories and then content. So it's it's an easy read. I, uh, I'm quite happy with the end result. Okay, I'll, I'll read it. And uh, you're also an advi in, the, in the advisory board of Europol, is that correct? Oh, I've been many years indeed. It's very, very unique position. Gives the kind of visibility that, uh, uh, that it's, it's hard to get any other way. And, and there's quite a remarkable amount of cooperation nowadays between law enforcement agencies. Europol um, is, is basically the, the post office between European law enforcement agencies. They, they don't do policing by themselves, but they cooperate and coordinate the local law enforcement. And that's today when we live in a world which has no borders, that's exactly what we need. And what the, what's the, 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 the craziest thing you saw there? Can you, can you talk about that or is that like... Um, there's things I can't say, but um, let, me, let me put it like this. The craziest things I've seen, the craziest things I've seen related to that particular role is that they have um, a surprisingly effective and power-hungry way to crack passwords whenever they confiscate computers belonging to criminals. Um, 
when they do that, they might be consuming a huge amount of electricity. And that's the kind of functionality not many people are aware is even being done in Europe. Okay, so it's basically supercomputing then? Or? I didn't say that. <laughs> and not quantum computing? I but... didn't say that either. <laughs> but thanks for asking. <laughs> but what, what will happen when we have like the first quantum computers ready? Right, quantum. Oh, there's actually a very interesting startup that I've been watching called IQM. Um, most of the quantum computing is being done with IBM and Google and, and the big boys. Uh, but there's a couple of interesting startups, and it might just be that after all this hype and waiting forever and, and always seeming that it's it's never going to happen, it might just be getting closer. And the question, how will our security systems recover when many of the traditional encryption algorithms break down, is is, is one of the crucial questions. There was actually a talk at Black Hat in Vegas maybe six years ago there was a guy just going through like, okay, if it would break tomorrow, let's say HTTPS, TSL, and the encryption algorithms we use for uh, transportation security would break tomorrow, how would we recover? How would we rebuild trust? Who would call who? How would we establish new routes for CAs? Really fascinating way of, of, of thinking about it. And I guess one interesting detail about quantum computing and, and, and quantum proof uh, encryption is that we already have a couple of solutions which which are safe from quantum computing. One of them, maybe surprisingly, is Bitcoin. If you always use a new address for every transaction, Bitcoin is quantum proof. So Satoshi Nakamoto was already thinking about quantum in 2008 when he wrote the paper, and that's pretty remarkable. But like, wouldn't it happen that like you basically calculate every Bitcoin that is available like to the to the limit that is set um whenever quantum is is cracked or no. is that not happening? no you can't you can't accelerate the rate of mining it's hard coded okay. in the original algorithm so it will still take i mean 90 percent of the bitcoins have been mined already but it will it will take 100 years to mine the last 10 percent okay and um like stepping back to hdps i mean didn't we already see what will happen when we had Heartbleed oh. and the Log4J issue and stuff like that. I mean, isn't that like in a, in a way lightweight preparation for, for quantum being, in around, being no. around? No, that's a different kind of of, uh, of breakdown. Very important and very drastic, but you recover in a different way. I guess the main learning from Heartbleed, and we had to apparently relearn it in Log4J, is that open source Security is a supply chain problem. Open source is supply for our environments. Pretty much every every software project anywhere relies on open source. And it seems like common, common libraries like OpenSSL and Curl, you'll find them from every single project. And when Heartbleed was found, uh, surprisingly found exactly at the same time in two different places, I, I know the group which found it in, in the University of Oulu, that really opened up our eyes on, on the the sorry state of auditing open source code. And I guess the best anecdote on that particular vulnerability was that the, the commit which introduced the bug in OpenSSL, which caused Heartbleed, was done by a single developer on New Year's Eve at 10 p.m. in the evening. And the question is, who the hell writes SSL libraries at 10 p.m. on New Year's Eve? And the answer is 
these guys. Like that's that's the kind of people who write the infrastructure that runs the societies around us, and we rely on them wholeheartedly. And nobody double checks what they write, and we just use it everywhere. Like yeah. there were tons of cars running Heartbleed vulnerable code. Look for J. He or Tesla's. Look for J. Right. Yeah. Tesla's running. Yeah. So it's it's everywhere, and and, yeah. and it really is responsibility of the companies that use this open source material to spend resources, people, man hours, and money to audit the code they use. But do you think it's only code auditing or isn't the responsibility of the of the uh, of the companies using it? I mean that goes very deep. I mean there are packages depending on packages, depending on packages, depending on packages. But shouldn't you like really see what you rely on and then maybe sponsor the whole stuff you're you're, you're using? Because like I, I mean like typically The curve for open source, from my perspective, is stuff gets very prominent. Like mm. Ruby on Rails got very prominent mm -hmm. at first, and then kind of it shortly, it shortly kind of fell, 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 fell. And then at a certain point, there was no one really taking care of that anymore, and people like kind of had real jobs. Maybe they right. got paid for. Isn't mm. isn't that like something we have to solve as as also community of of open source sure, developers? Sure, sure. It's not just auditing, and when I said auditing, I didn't mean just look through the code and, and be happy auditing in the, in the sense of like committing people to work with the project long term to make sure the code quality is better and of course it doesn't have to be auditing it can be active participation in, mm. in developing the, the code base to be better and more secure nevertheless for companies especially the companies that have the resources that have the budgets to Uh, take their responsibility for the projects they use. And and I have to be clear here, it's not like this isn't happening. This is happening. We've seen the wake-up calls, uh, but apparently we need needed another wake-up call, which was Log4J. And we, we have wake-up calls like almost every month right now, right? I mean, recently there was like a breach at Heroku, right? Mm -hmm. um, sure. Can you tell us about that? Um, I didn't actually follow that one so closely. And I think a better example on the kind of I issues we also have to worry about regarding supply chain security when we speak about open source as a, as a supply chain issue is what happened with uh, sabotaged containers and sabotaged open source code bases, especially during the Ukraine war. Um, people were actively uh, changing their code f to retaliate on Russian users, for example, or, or similar cases where people were modifying the code to send a political message. And this is... Uh, It's also an interesting question, like, are we supposed to be okay with uh, political use of code like this? I, I'm not really mm. sure what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. So you mean, like, the cases we saw that, like, the Russian TV, for example, was was mo modified, or the Russian... No, uh, um, there, there were a couple of people who, who were uh, had really popular libraries who self-sabotaged their own code. Self-sabotaged. So, so okay. it, it would do destructive things when it was executed in Russia, for example. Mm -hmm. So tried to send a statement about the war to Russia by using their code and their visibility, the code being popular as, as a transportation mechanism for the, for the message, which is understandable, but it's problematic. In a way, it is. I mean, at the beginning of the war, I thought, okay, why can't Ripe just shut down IPv4 there, right? Something right. like that. Um, sure. like, what, 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 what do you think? Like, if this would have happened... Um, And it didn't happen. Uh, but if this would have happened, like what what would be the answer then? Like, is yeah. it dangerous from your perspective? Or <clears throat> okay, the, the 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 discussion around RUNET or RUNET um, 
has been very interesting. Argunet is the intranet of Russia. This is the project they've been speaking about for two years now, that they claim they can disconnect Russia from the rest of the internet. And and they claimed in July 2021 that they tested this successfully. And the funny thing is, we were watching network topology and BGP routing and, and, and core routers of the internet when they claimed they did it and we didn't see anything happen. So I don't think they did anything. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is an information operation. They're claiming they have the capability of disconnecting from the internet and being independent. And I don't think they can do it. I don't think they've tested it. I don't think they want to do it. And then we have the other side of the discussion. Okay, should we do it? If they're not going to disconnect themselves uh, as a way of sanctioning Russia because of the aggressive war on Ukraine, should and could the rest of the world shut down Russia and remove it from the internet? And the answer is we we could. Definitely we could. Mm-hmm. Um, we could even reroute the internal traffic inside Russia to a black hole for large, large mm-hmm. mountains. Mm-hmm. They don't have root servers. They don't have CAs. We could shut down all of that. Uh, we could shut down routing uh, for, for Russian um, or RU addresses. We could remove them from the DNS. Um, but I don't think we should. And I, I, I'm not a fan of Russia by any means. Uh, I live in Helsinki. I, I mean, I, we've had problem, problematic, pro, problematic neighbor for decades. But when we think about the Russian people, like one of the very few things left that will be able to provide them with balanced, independent, neutral information is through the internet. Mm. Um, and, and if we cut them off, that's one of the one of the few things we have left for communicating and getting the real information out. And and in in fact, in my book, any development anywhere which turns internet into disconnected islands is bad development. You see, internet is one of the very few things that we have, which is really and truly global. It really has been internet in all meanings of the word. And that's why it's flourished. And that's why it's been so great and problematic at the same time. But any development which would take away the global nature of the internet, I think would be a bad development. But wouldn't wouldn't it just be smarter? Wouldn't we just be smarter than them if, uh, if we like turn off, I don't know, the wrong news sources from our perspective? Would it be It wouldn't be legitimate, but um, in a way, it would be way smarter than cutting them off from the financial system mm. if we cut them off from the internet. I mean, it's like the financial system also depends on the internet. So mm-hmm. you could, I don't know, kill uh, RTD.com and stuff like that. Right. Um, and and um, and people are trying. There's, there's plenty of Western hackers, Ukrainian hackers, hobbyist hackers, civilians around the world mm-hmm. trying to do that. Um, it's easier said than done, but we've seen more cyber activity during this war um, than ever before in mm. any other conflict. Mm. Mm. And, and I want to be clear here. I don't want to overemphasize or exaggerate the the importance of cyber in the Ukrainian war um, because it is a very real war full of very real deaths and very r- real tragedies. And cyber is important, but it's not the most important part. When cruise missiles are hitting apartment buildings, It's kind of hard to take the, all this cyber stuff as seriously as 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 we otherwise would. Yeah, but maybe that would be hackable as well, right? I don't know. I mean, I, well, I but, just had the the Raspberry Pi founder here in the podcast, and mm-hmm. I could imagine that in some missiles, there's actually like a tiny Raspberry Pi 
just steering the way through um, to, to <laughs> Ukraine. So <laughs> yeah, although it's kind of hard probably to find a way to connect to. Yeah. But of course, yeah. all the weapons are being controlled by computers. No doubt about that. It, it, that is very true. But it, they are not online in the sense that you could easily find a way and hack them. However, I did read a very interesting tech paper um, maybe two years ago about a, uh, what was it? Uh, not buffer overflow, but stack leak in a military system, which someone was investigating and reporting and turns out that it was, yeah, there was there was a mem- yeah, memory leak in, in a missile control system, which they decided not to do anything about because it was in a missile. And, you know, when the missile hits the target, it doesn't matter that it has leaked <laughs> memory. It's like a garbage collection by hitting a target. It doesn't matter that it's, there's been... Like it's shortly but surely running out of memory, but it's not going to run out of memory before it hits the target. Mm, mm, mm. And that's yeah. not the way we think about coding typically. Like typically, you, if if you have a memory over or, or or memory leak, you want to fix it because it's going to be a problematic eventually. Here, it doesn't matter. Yeah, very short li- lifetime for too, a too, like too that. short lifetime. Yeah, yeah. can imagine. But I mean, in the future, like what you write in your book, if it's smart, it's vulnerable. Uh, vulnerable. Um, that will also apply to, to weapons, right? I mean, that uh-huh. right now doesn't really. I mean, yes. if you look at all the tanks, it kind of mm-hmm. looks um, horribly old from my perspective. Uh-huh. But I mean, 20 years from now, it, exactly. it will also apply to those, right? I think you're exactly on, on the money here. Um, if someone would have told us 30 years ago, when in the beginning of, 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 of the web revolution, 1992, very first website started to appear around 1992. Uh, 1994 is when the big revolution really started. Uh, someone would have told us back then that, you know, eventually every single factory will be connected to the internet. We would have laughed. Like, of course they won't. That would be really dangerous, really insecure. Why on earth would you connect factories to internet? Mm. And of course, today, every factory is on the internet. And today, exactly in the same way, we shake our heads on the idea of weapon systems being on the internet. And they will be on the internet. Everything will be on there. Obviously, I mean, five G is kind of kind of uh, two years uh, away from us. So, I mean, your watch is potentially connected. I mean, yours isn't, but uh, I have an Apple Watch and it's connected to the internet and has like a three G connection. So, this will most likely happen. And That's right. Isn't that then? I mean, ideally, I mean, if you think about weapons and like people really running against each other and shooting each other, it's kind of stupid, right? It, it, feel, it really feels <laughs> it's stupid. It's kind of stupid. I agree. Yeah. And would that lead to then just people fighting each other using cyber weapons at a certain point, no. using laptops no. at a certain no. point? No. No, it won't. Unfortunately not. I, I would prefer cyber war over other types of war. Less people die in, in cyber war. The problem is cyber war is not a thing by itself. Cyber is a new domain for fighting wars. Um, technology has always shaped the way we fight our wars, the way we handle our conflicts. 500 years ago, the best technology we had was swords. So we fought our wars, wars with swords until we got good enough technology to build warships. So land war expanded into sea war, but the innovation of sea war did not make land war go away. We just fought in both. Mm. Then we got planes, so air war, satellites and shit, so space war, and now cyberspace war. And if you look at modern conflicts like Ukraine, they are fighting in all of them, land, sea, air, space, and cyberspace. And the interesting thing about this is that these five domains today 
is not a full list. It will be longer. There will be a sixth domain and seventh domain for war. We just don't know what they are yet. But I can guarantee to you that whatever they will be, they will sound like science fiction today. So I don't know what the sixth domain will be, but let's say it's going to be nano warfare. And you could imagine um, the enemy distributing airborne micro robots, which would infiltrate the bloodstream of enemy soldiers and go to their brains and modify their thoughts. And if that sounds like science fiction to you, well, exactly. That's how science fiction-like cyber war sounded like 30 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, we're on the other end, thinking about brain implants and whenever they are brain implants, then you most likely um, can also modify that, right? And it yeah. most likely has a 3G chip. So I, I think it's not, I mean, it's it, it really sounds like they bad fiction but um it's kind of like isn't that like the path to to that all happening right like, right but nevertheless the point is that we are unlikely to see just a cyber war between two countries it's always going to be a war and it's going to be fought in multiple domains including cyber at the same time um what I, like when, when you look at at, at russia versus there's there's ukraine again I mean, how many people are actually there using VPNs and trying to escape all of that and trying to escape the information bubble that, that they have in their country? Like, how, how would you see that? How many smart, educated hackers are there in Russia that try to, to, to fight against what is happening there? Oh, they definitely do exist. I, I can't give you numbers, but I have been in touch with people, Russian hackers, Russian coders, who don't support the war, who do what they can from within. Um but it's hard when you're living inside such a bubble where the majority of the opinion is different from you and they don't believe the truth. Yeah. They don't believe what's really happening in Ukraine. Um, and I've during this war, I've been in touch a lot with the uh, with, with people in Ukraine, with, with the IT army members and, and with technical people over there. And I've been surprised by many of the details. For example, one detail was that when I was speaking to a, a group of IT army people um, who were like daytime developing, working as a developer, and then evening time fighting Russians online and launching attacks against Russian infrastructure, um, big part of them were women. And I was like, well, that was I was surprised. And they were like, well, what do you think? All the men are in the battlefield. So like, it's, it's, are you stupid? And I was like, well, yeah, actually, now that you say it, that's pretty obvious. I just didn't think about it beforehand. And also... One thing which I found interesting is that these Ukrainians who are fighting Russians online, many of them have felt the need to emphasize to me that they are not criminals, they're not bad people, and, and that they are not breaking any laws. That, you know, during peacetime, it's illegal to shoot people. During wartime, it's okay, as long as you shoot your enemy. During peacetime, it's illegal to break into services and hack services. During wartime, it's okay, as long as it's your enemy. That's mm -hmm. what they were telling to me. And of course, that's the way it works. It's just uh, interesting that these people felt that they have to explain that. They, they wanted to tell to me that they're not bad people. They're not criminals. They, they're just trying to defend their homeland. And I, I understand that very well. That's so strange, right? I mean, if you think about cyber, that like differs a lot from like really the fact that there are like people shooting each others yeah. <laughs> and really killing each others mm -hmm. and taking photos of that and twittering that. So it's really, really ridiculous from my perspective. But um, 
Uh, like one one guy I had to think about uh, when the war first started, and I, I I honestly I remember myself like checking his Twitter profile like ten times in a row. Um, was obviously at Snowden, so mm -hmm. I I just thought, okay, I don't want to be in this man's skin. Like right. I'm, <laughs> I mean, oh, I didn't, yeah. didn't want that before, place. but yeah. um, like, what what do you think? Like, what is he doing? I, I don't know if you you're in touch with him or I, I I'm not, but I'm sure he's kicking himself over and over again for getting stuck in of all the countries in Russia. Uh, that's not where he wanted to end in. In fact, at the time when he was leaving Hong Kong and trying to trying to uh, you know escape, everybody thought he was on his way to Iceland because he had very good connections in Iceland and felt that Iceland could protect him. Um, and the most logical route from Hong Kong, where he was, to Iceland is actually not through Russia. It's actually through Helsinki, Finland, because Finnair has a direct flight to both. Um, and of course, the reason why he got stuck in Moscow was that his passport was invalidated by U.S. government while he was on air. So if he would have had the same experience while he would have been rerouted or routed through Iceland through Finland, I wonder if he would still be in Helsinki or if he, if Finland would have been able to protect him mm. in, 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 in Helsinki as well as, I mean... I guess could, he would have just been delivered then, right? I mean... Maybe. We, we'll, yeah. we'll never know. But I don't think he wanted to be in, in Moscow, but I don't think he has a choice. Yeah, I mean, he didn't Twitter for a while, oh, yeah. um, and he was quite active before. And uh, I don't know what he's doing right now, but I mean, what kind of a life is it there? I mean, he sometimes has appearances on conferences, like mm -hmm. online appearances, and so on. Like, is he living like a normal life there? You do you know I, that? I I don't really know, and I don't want to speculate on that. But yeah. uh, it's uh, he's. Uh, He's, he's in a difficult position, especially now during the war, especially when you can't publicly say that it's a war. And obviously, it is a war. And um, like coming back to your, your your future development, so how will the 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 role of AI and machine learning be in in cybersecurity? I mean, is that maybe like the next step then? Like before yes, we yes. go to those drones that kind of infect your nervous yeah. system and so on? That's a different development. Yes, AI clearly will be the next big step for the attackers. For the defenders, this is ancient history. In fact, at, at our company, at, at With Secure, we started developing machine learning-based defenses in 2005. That's goddamn 17 years ago. That's forever ago. And all this time, 17 years, we've been waiting for the attackers to start to use these technologies, and they still haven't today. But they will. And the main reason why it's going to happen in the near future is that we have wealthier and wealthier cybercrime gangs. They're already hiring lawyers and business analysts and running fake security companies to hire remote pen testers to, to work for cyber cybersecurity companies, which really are cyber criminals. So it's 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 clear that they are on the verge of being able to hire enough or MLAI people to work for them. And then we will start seeing malware, which will rewrite its own code and modify its functionality and phishing attacks, which will learn what works and what doesn't and modify on the fly. All of that is going to happen. It's going to happen in the, in the near future. But then we'll see how well the machine learning systems built by security companies like ours, how, how good will they actually fare against bad AI? Then we will have good AI against bad AI.
when you talk about those, those mechanisms, is it is like mostly pattern detection and stuff like that, log files? Or? It's mostly handling the large amounts of samples, large amounts of attacks, large amounts of vulnerabilities and bugs that have to be handled, and running the automated uh, honey nets and honeypots which collect all these samples. There's simply too much stuff to be handled by humans, so it has to be handled handled by uh, by machines. And this applies both to um, consumer security products as well as to enterprise and, and, and corporate security products. And I, I have to mention here as we we're speaking that, you know, last time we spoke, I was working for F-Secure. Nowadays, I'm working for With Secure because the company is splitting into, into two different companies. So to consumer business. F and With. Yeah, yeah consumer business is going to be F-Secure and, and uh, enterprise business is going to be With Secure. So effectively, what we're doing is we're taking the biggest cybersecurity company in the Nordics and splitting it into the biggest and the second biggest cybersecurity company in the Nordics. Yeah, I guess like your part is then the, the uh, let's say, more interesting part, like with the companies. Uh, like Business-wise, it's maybe the better thing. And I don't know. I don't know. But I will be with the enterprise side. It's, it's going to be the bigger of the two sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, understood. Um, uh, one thing where we, we can actually see um, AI being applied in, in attacks, uh, so-called attacks, uh, is phishing, right? Mm -hmm. When like GPT-3 kind of made it very accessible, it, like everyone can use GPT-3 these, these days, or almost everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and that leads to emails being sent that just look as like they were real from, I don't know, an email from your boss that, uh, who sends you like a very, very like tonality-wise, very natural um, language written email uh, to send him money and stuff like that. And um, you think that will even become more or smarter uh, with, with GPT-3 entering and, 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 and all of that? These natural language processing systems are amazing. I've been playing with GPT-3 for more than a year and I'm always amazed, especially about the fact that it works in any language. Any language I, I can speak, it can speak, including all the funky dialects, including programming languages. So it yeah. really is yeah, that's really, crazy, right? really versatile uh, and, and scary at the same time. Powerful and scary. That's the way we like it. Now, the thing that saves us for now from, from the worst attacks that can be used with automated natural language generation is that you cannot download GPT-3. It's only available as a service which you use through their cloud, which means they can monitor um, and, and, and detect malicious use. They, they can kick you out. If mm -hmm. you start sending out millions of phishing emails, they will stop it. And, and, and that's going to save us for now. And, and the official reason, or I don't know if it's official, but uh, the explanation why you can't download GPT-3 is not just that they want to control it. It's the fact that it's too damn large. The, the, the corpus is huge. Just the index is supposed to be like petabytes or whatever. Mm. So it's it's undownloadable. They don't mm. can be used remotely. But these days, I mean, offline use of, of AI also got got more more powerful and, mm -hmm. and compact, right? I mean, yeah. it will, I don't know if a, a Siri, something like that, already works offline partly. Um, I think, I and, think and it such does, models. Yeah. Yeah, yeah to, to some length it does. Yes, the, at least the language detection part does work. It mm -hmm. can tell you the mm -hmm. time of the day without being online. So yes, it does. So yeah, obviously that's not going to save us forever, and 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 I'm not really sure what the long term solution for this will be. Just like generation of 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 uh, GA and images clearly brought us new problems where you can now make tons of 
yeah. realistic looking humans were not real. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just wrote down deep fakes when, when you were talking. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, what do you think about that? Like, well, I, I I know the guy who runs the team that developed this technology. It's Nvidia technology made in yeah, Finland. Yeah. By, by mostly old old demo scene. Hackers. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I once saw a video of a guy like he really looked a bit nerdy, and he was from Finland. Yeah, um, yeah. It's those guys like old 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 demo scene hackers. Yeah. As as a, the same gang is always behind interesting developments, whether it's GANs or uh, I don't know new rendering technologies. Uh, in fact. Some of the reader or listeners might remember Future Crew and Second Reality. Two of the guys who did the graphics for that actually ended up working for Qualcomm. And many of the listeners carry Qualcomm chips designed by these demo scene hackers in their pockets right now, which is which is quite quite remarkable. I actually mentioned this story in my book, so it's 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 interesting to see how these really long term trends come back, and you will we will see them over and over again. But yeah. These algorithms, which get better and better because they they guide each other, like in GAN, you have like uh, uh, like competing algorithms shooting each other down, and you end up with something which looks convincingly real. It's exciting and scary at the same time. But aren't there also algorithms AI that can detect such deepfakes easily? Yes, for now, and it's going to be a massive game of cat and mouse. Anything yeah, it's again will like be... a cat and mouse game, like everything yeah. in life, right? Everything in life, and everything in 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 online crime, everything that's bad online, everything we try to fight, it's a game of cat and mouse, and it's not going to be over anytime soon. And the good news in that is that there's job security in security. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously, that's a good <laughs> thing for you. Um... <laughs> And yeah, the, the 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 question for now is like which country is the the cat and which is the mouse, right? Oh. It's like also being being fought on the country level. So, I mean, the U.S. kind of like as we all know, since since Edward Snowden uh, is like kind of far ahead, I guess. Yes, um, what do you think about about Europe? Um, is there like any positive picture you can draw on Europe um, when it comes to to cybersecurity? Oh, well, by far. The best country in Europe to defend its networks and its systems against governmental attacks is Ukraine. And that's almost surprising because it's it's a poor country. Their GDP is like one-fifth of Finland's GDP. Uh, they have tons of old legacy systems. So wh why are they so good? And the answer is all the other countries, Germany, Finland, UK, France, have been building their defenses and rehearsing against Uh, theoretical attacks, running tabletop exercises and war games. And Ukraine has done none of that. They've been fighting real Russian attacks for eight years, over and over and over again. And the end result is that they're getting really good at detecting and stopping them. So, for example, during this war now, Russians have tried, again, cutting the power in Ukraine and failed. So they are able to fight against these attacks that Russians are capable of doing. So Russia is failing. They, they're surprisingly weak in both their real-world attacks and their online attacks when they fight against Ukraine. Interesting. I thought they are like a bit more advanced there, um, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually thought that like potentially Estonia is, is very advanced. Um, oh, Estonia is, is good. Potentially. It's good. I, I, would, I would, of course, rank it high. Um, not the highest, but very high. And the reason why... Um, it, I think Estonia is so good. Well, the most important reason is, is leadership. Um, but what really helped them 
to get where they are today is is that they had no legacy. Yeah, they they, they got independent in the 1990s. Yeah. Yeah. They kicked out all the old technology made by Russians and started from scratch already from the internet age. And I remember, I I know the the previous president of Estonia, um, Mr. Thomas Ilves, personally uh, met him last week, and and he's always been. I've always been impressed about his level of technical knowledge. The first time I saw him speak as a president in a presidential meeting, he was speaking about like DNS-based DDoS reflection attacks. And he's a goddamn president. So, really? Yes, oh. really. So I- impressive level of technical knowledge. And, and that's what defines the, the leaders in, in Estonia today as well. It's a small country, so it's agile and they have no legacy. So it's it's a little bit unfair. <laughs> yeah, um, sounds a little bit unfair if I compare it to Germany. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> fingers crossed. Um, so we, we shortly have to come to the end. So um, if you could, as our listeners, as CTOs, if you could like shout out um, a few ideas to CTOs, uh, what you would recommend to them. Uh, living in this in this like crazy time uh, of of ransom and so on, uh, what what would it be? Well, think through your threat assessments. Think through who you really are. What does your company do? Who do you really need to worry about? Like who would like to hurt you? Who would like to steal from you? Are you in a position where your competitors are trying to spy on you? Are you? a valid military target for during times of conflict and war? Are you a defense contractor? Um, And the answers to these questions are different for different organizations. And it also defines what kind of enemies, what kind of attackers do you have to worry about? And that means that then you can start putting your limited resources and your limited budgets into the right place. There's no point in building defenses against governmental attackers if you are running a chain of pizza restaurants. You're never going to become a target of foreign spies or foreign militaries, but you do have to worry about criminals who want to steal your money, your credit card systems, your payment, your payroll. So put your money and your resources into the right place. Okay, the last time, um, like my closing question is like typically the time machine question, like what would you do if you would see yourself like 15 years ago? And I asked you that question and you gave the most impressive answer I ever got. Um, you would not whisper anything into your young self's ears. You would just be, because you, you're just happy with what you do, uh, which I really liked. But if you could now just go like three years back. Oh, three years back, before the pandemic. Yes. Huh. What would I do? I wouldn't need to buy a summer cottage, which would be good advice otherwise, because I live on a place which is pretty pretty much like a summer cottage, basically off the grid and uh, in a safe, decent place. Huh. So don't buy a summer cottage? <laughs> I'm not really sure what I would tell. That's You got me there. I don't have a good answer for you. I'm sure I'll come up with a great answer right after we stop recording. Okay, then you, you have to email me that. Yeah. But your, your last one was quite impressive. But, yes. Uh, so thanks a lot, Miko, Thank you for very being much. here. Um, and I hope you don't hack into our, our smart devices we have here at the conference. No, 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 no. I won't. I won't. It's great to be here at Omar after all this time being disconnected or speaking to the cold eye of the camera. It's great to be in a real world event with tens of thousands of people and speaking to real people. So I love it here. Yeah, yeah. As I as I said yesterday, like my big learning 
um, in the last six months or my biggest learning was actually yesterday when I realized that reality beats fiction by far. Um, that's um, like really what, what, what you feel here again, right? right? And I just got a good answer to what would I whisper to myself three years ago. Rent a Donkey Kong. I considered, I have a friend who rents old arcade machines. And in the beginning of the pandemic, when I realized we're going to be stuck in home, let's, let, I want to rent a Donkey Kong because I want to make a new high score in Donkey Kong. The 1981 <laughs> Nintendo coin. And, and, and then I, well, it's going to be over soon. I, 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 you know, I don't want to do the hassle and move, move it around. Of course, if it lasted so long, I should have done it, but I didn't. So that's the advice. Mikko, rent a Donkey Kong right now. Did you rent one now? or <laughs> No, the, the pandemic is now over. I'm not going to rent it anymore. <laughs> Let's hope for that. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mikko, for being here and hope to see you soon again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.